At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast, where we are forging genuine human connection through fitness, health, mindset, and nutrition. Let's get to the show with your hosts, Jared Bradford, Connor Edelbrock, and Corey Mueller. Hello and welcome to episode number 108 of the Weekly Warrior Podcast. You are here with Jared and Connor. How you doing, Con? Great. How are you? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty good. I'm here to tell you a story and I'm confident that you have not heard of this individual because I didn't hear of this individual either. Okay, you said that about the past two stories and I knew mm. both of the individuals. Did you? Yes. Oh shit, yeah. You Mr. underestimate Toko. me. Yeah. I don't and I'm not underestimating you, but I I think this one's pretty well unknown. I think I knew I you I knew that you knew who Mr. Rogers was. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that you possibly knew his entire name. So mm-hmm. I thought I was trying to trying to fool you. Mm-hmm. If you know this person, I mean, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome because I think they're pretty well unknown. And I only happened to like stumble upon them. So it's a pretty interesting story. Um okay. And so we're going to get into it, okay? Yeah. This is the story of the first female millionaire, an escaped slave who empowered the Underground Railroad. And the date that we begin is August 19th-ish, 1814. Mary Ellen Pleasant was born, or so we think, because birth dates were scarcely remembered or written down back then, especially for slaves in the South. Where she was born is also up to uh, debate, as well as who her parents were and if she was indeed born into slavery or not, so a lot of unknowns. She herself stated that she was born free in Philadelphia on Barley Street. Others state that she was born into slavery in Georgia or Virginia, but I'm not sure why others would know uh, better than her. Other stories state that she was the daughter of a voodoo priestess from the Caribbean, Hawaiian merchant or a wealthy Virginian. In truth, as you'll see more in time, Mary Ellen Pleasant used stories to please whatever audience she may be talking to at the time. But here's some real stuff. Her mother disappeared at the age of six and Mary went to live with a Mr. and Mrs. Williams. She henceforth went by the name Mary Ellen Williams until she was married uh, way later in life. She was 11 years old and at that time, Mr. Williams took her to Connecticut to be an indentured servant to the Hussey Gardner family who were abolitionists. Mr. Williams left money to Mary Ellen for her education, yet she never received any formal schooling. She moved to Nantucket during the 1820s, which was the quote, golden era of whaling in the region. The Hussey family owned a store in town, which Mary worked at and learned everything she could about the business, how to run it, business demeanor, business exchanges, making deals, interactions, and the art of friendliness. She stated of herself, 
Quote, I was a smart girl who left books alone and instead studied men and women a good deal. I noticed that when I had something to say, people always listened to me. They never slept on me. Throughout her time in Nantucket, the Hussey Gardner family taught her to read and to write on top of letting her learn the business. And in 1840, she left. Mary Ellen went to Boston and worked as an apprentice to a tailor. It was here that it's believed that she met her husband, James Smith. And, and so I know what you're thinking, James Smith, then why, is her, why isn't her last name Smith? And why is it pleasant? Mm-hmm. Well, let's find out. James was an abolitionist. And with the help of Mary Ellen, they aided slaves in escaping north to Nova Scotia via the Underground Railroad. James was an agent for the Liberator, an anti-slavery newspaper. However, as good as all this was, James was violent towards Mary Ellen, and he reportedly was abusive. And after four years of marriage, James died from causes unspecified. James sounds like a hack. (laughs) He's a fucking hack. And we don't know how he died. I couldn't figure out how he died. He was a pretty young dude, though. I don't know what happened. Uh, Here we go. James Smith was rather wealthy. Upon his death, an estate was left to his widow, Mary Ellen, which was worth tens of thousands of dollars. And in the 1840s, that's a couple million dollars in today's money. She changed her last name to Pleasant, and that is the end of our story. Wow. (laughs) I'm just kidding. That's it? (laughs) No. (laughs) Just kidding. Gotcha. Um, She continued her work as a conductor uh, on the Underground Railroad for three to four more years, but it was uh, obviously extremely dangerous work. She was harassed, chased, and threatened by slavers and ultimately had to leave the East Coast for fear of her own life. And she was also facing persecution for her role in the Underground Railroad under the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, which basically guaranteed the right of the slave owner to recover any escaped slave. And if you were found aiding that escaped slave, then you basically faced prison time at best, or you were just executed or hung. It was a pretty, pretty shitty time. Uh, so she left the East Coast. But she went back to Nantucket in Connecticut before she fled. Here at some point, she met Jane, John James Pleasant, who was a former slave. The two were married and had a child together. This was the late 1840s, and the California gold rush was beginning to draw a bunch of travelers. Mary Ellen sailed from Boston to New Orleans, where she briefly stayed and helped slaves escape. She learned cooking lessons while she was there, and he was even said to have taken voodoo lessons from a Queen Marie Laveau, Laveau, who I guess was really popular at the time for, for her voodoo. She hopped on a ship to California just before she was to be captured for her role in the Underground Railroad. This whole journey from New Orleans to California took about four months uh, by ship. The gold rush gave a unique opportunity for black people at the time, a chance to earn real money for work. Many black people earned a great living off prospecting, so basically they would would survey the land and tell people where they think the gold was or where Mm. good spots were. Mm -hmm. But a wrinkle came when a southern governor took the helm in California and enforced slavery laws to which black people would be sold if they didn't have appropriate papers. His goal was to eliminate blacks from the state. Also at the time, regardless of race, only one in ten pioneers, so people that went to California, were women. So one in ten people in California were women at the time. And she's African-American, so she's, things are really working against her. 
When Mary Ellen arrived in San Francisco, she was immediately thrown into a bidding war between several men that wanted to hire her to be their cook. Mary Ellen was said to have had $15,000 in gold coins, equivalent to $466,622 today. So she's just carrying that around in her bag. She basically told these guys that were in a bidding war to screw off and that she was going to go live her own life. She was extremely clever with her money. She sold her gold when the value of gold was very high against the gold rush. She deposited her silver into a bank and then took out that value in gold instead and sold it again for higher profits. She put her money into several different banks as well as divided money between a black Baptist minister named Thomas Randolph, William West of Weston Harper, and Frank Langford at a 10% interest rate. So she's earning 10% on her investments, which is pretty nice. She made investments based on conversations that she overheard while she worked and lived in a live-in domestic. Live-in domestic is you go into people's home and you live there and work there, but you get paid. Basically, she went into wealthy people's homes, overheard these conversations about investments, and then she made those investments. Nobody really, no one knew who this girl was, this lady was. No one knew that she had money. You know, she's flying under the radar. She accumulated wealth and opened up boarding houses, laundries, and bordellos. She was the co-founder of the Bank of California and established several several well-known restaurants in the area. Amid her growth and wealth, she did not appear to be extremely well off. She retained her modesty in these years and stayed quiet. For her own safety, she went by the name Mary Ellen Smith, who Smith was her first husband, and wrote down that she was a white woman in the city census. And so that's who she became, to her white neighbors and associates at least. And uh, Mary Ellen, you'll see pictures of her later. She, I forgot what they, the term they called it, but basically slaves in the South in certain areas at some certain time period had babies with other white people, whether they be slave owners or or anything like that from the family. And so she was a lighter skinned, Mm, so she could kind of pass as white. People bought it. Oh, okay. So she went by Mary Ellen Smith. But she was Mrs. Pleasant to former slaves who worked at any of her businesses, which included stables, a dairy farm, a tenant farm, and a loan business. She was careful to keep her name out of Underground Railroad-related transactions, but among other abolitionists, she was known as Mrs. Pleasant. While continuing her work on the Underground Railroad, she assisted fugitive slaves obtain safe transportation, housing, and jobs. She funded her efforts through the wealth that she had left from her first husband's estate. She's still kind of riding off that. She became a quote, one woman social agency that assisted in the transportation of black men and women to California. Once there, she ensured their daily needs were met until they were employed or had established businesses, both of which she helped them accomplish. She established a boarding house that doubled as a safe house for runaways. Her house was also a safe house for runaways, and she had wealthy white homeowners who established their homes as run as safe houses as well. So she has good support from, you know, white people at the time as well. Uh, she helped enslaved people who traveled with their owners to escape while in California. Again, still flying under the radar. She became known as the quote mother of civil rights in California for her efforts. She funded defense trials of black people who were under persecution of escaping slavery in southern states and fleeing to California. Uh, justice didn't really always prevail in these trials, but she, she didn't stop her fight uh, to ban slavery in the state of California. Most of the time, those trials, no one would represent 
those escaped slaves, mm-hmm. so they would just yeah. be brought back. So she at least like was able to fund a defense trial, which was pretty unprecedented. She helped women of any eth- ethnicity by helping them with housing and clothing, as well as advising them about how to carry themselves and how to dress. She also helped women find homes for their children if they could not support them. She arranged mar- marriages between wealthy men and her protégés, who kept detailed records about the men's activities, such as illegitimate children, infidelities, and political and financial shenanigans, which may have been used for blackmail. She's using these people for blackmail so they don't take advantage because they're a different ethnicity or something like that. She's this strange ringleader that she's planting people in in these like wealthier societies. In 1857, she left San Francisco to help uh, John Brown, who was an abolitionist leader that gained national attention and following for his role in the Bleeding Kansas events, which were a series of deadly attacks and fights over slavery in the Kansas region. So John Brown led a fight in the southern states from October 16th to 18th, 1859, in which he attempted to take over a large United States armory at Harper's Ferry with the intent of arming enslaved people. This would be the beginning of the rebellion, so he thought. It was meant to be a stealthy takeover, which would leave Brown and his men with control over immeasurable amounts of guns and ammo to disperse to slaves. Brown's men took over the armory, taking control of its boundless firepower and ammunition, but very few local slaves joined his rebellion out of most likely fear. I gotta believe that part of it was they didn't know, potentially know about it. Because <laughs> mm. slave owners aren't going to tell slaves that, hey, you know, there's a rebellion going on. Slaves at that time were brought up to do one thing, uh, unfortunately, and that was to be a slave. So to try to arm them, who knows if they knew exactly what to do or what was going on. Um, but, you know, that's just speculating, I guess. But in either way, Uh, They didn't really join his rebellion. So after about 36 hours, Brown's men were captured or killed by local farmers, militiamen, and the U.S. Marines, led by General Robert E. Lee. In all, 10 of his party, John Brown's party, were killed during the raid. Seven were captured and later executed, and only five escaped. This event is known as the prelude to the Civil War. National outrage poured in over the capture of John Brown because he had a lot of national support, especially in the North. John Brown was captured during the raid. When he was searched, a note was found in his pocket saying, The axe is laid at the foot of the tree. When the first blow is struck, there will be more money to help. The Harper's Ferry incident was almost entirely funded by none other than Mary Ellen Pleasant. Officials most likely believed it was written by a wealthy northerner who had helped fund Brown's attempt to incite and arm an enormous slave uprising by taking over an arsenal. So basically, they read the note and they think somebody in the north must have been funding this and we're going to find them. Many wealthy northerners and abolitionists alike feared for their safety following these events as southern slave owners targeted suspects. No one expected that the note was written by Pleasant, but it was. The note was only signed with the initials M.E.P., which were were Mary Ellen Pleasant, but they were misread as W.E.P. by the Southerners, and she wasn't caught. (laughs) 
John Brown was executed on December 2nd. Ow. He was the first person in U.S. history to be executed for high treason, which is bananas. <laughs> because obviously during this this time, not to say that we've had a lot of treasonous people, but what he did was uh, obviously trying to take over. He was a, being a vigilante, I guess. But just because the law is the law, right? Slaves by law could be slaves. You could own them. You could own people. Doesn't make it right. So he was doing the right thing morally. Mm-hmm. I think anybody would agree. But against the law, it was treasonous. So they killed him. Among those in the audience at his execution was John Wilkes Booth, who stole a Confederate uniform to sneak into the execution. Mary Ellen Pleasant returned to San Francisco to continue her work, where she became known as the, quote, Black City Hall. At this point, she amassed a large, extremely large fortune. She had made far more money than most elite wealthy white people at the time, and she used it for the betterment of society but it was also important to her that she continued to make money. She invested in many businesses, including lodges, more laundries, and even Wells Fargo. She developed a lasting relationship with Thomas Bell, a wealthy investor back east. Together, they amassed investments that exceeded $30 million, which is equivalent to $707 million today. I can't even wrap my mind around. That is bananas, isn't it? She was almost a billionaire Mm -hmm. in the 1870s. That alone, like if you hear anybody like that in the 1800s, even now, that's an absurd (laughs) absurd amount of money. But she was a former slave funding the Underground Railroad and a woman. (laughs) It's just wild. Yeah, the deck was stacked against her from the very beginning. Totally. And I don't know, anybody can just take their circumstances and be like, that's just it you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, a fixed mindset in a way, or they could be like, I mean, when she arrived in San Francisco, she was like, no, I'm not being anybody's cook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have all this money. Fuck you guys. I'm going to do my own thing. And that's kind of her attitude throughout her entire life. She didn't take her circumstances like as, as a, as an end game. Right. Yeah. She, um, when you were talking about earlier, when she was really young, I think you said she was 10, and mm-hmm. she she kind of mastered the art of friendliness. Yeah. I just kept picturing, you know, she's studying people. That's how she became so clever, is as right. a 10-year-old, she just started to people watch and observe how people interacted. And I think that really helped her along the way. Totally. And it kind of gives you insight, like, she never got an education either. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was a little black girl and they didn't educate but she ended up in a pretty good circumstance where she learned to read and write but yeah most of her knowledge was social knowledge mm-hmm. right and reading yeah. people and that's i think a lot of entrepreneurs today would say that same thing that like that's all it is a lot of entrepreneurs today will say if you don't need a college education things like that you know mm-hmm. yeah. get really good at at learning people so yeah she uh, they amassed her and thomas bell so it was kind of Uh, both of their money uh, amassed $707 million. At the end of the Civil War, she began to note herself as a woman of color on the city census. She turned her focus to fighting remnants of slavery, including the Jim Crow laws, and established a 1,000-acre ranch for former slaves in Sonoma County. 
she no longer lived quietly. She lived her final 20 years in a 30-room mansion that spanned two San Francisco blocks. In 1880, she had 15 people living in her home. There were five members of Thomas Bell's family, including his wife, Teresa, and kids. While the Bells and the Pleasants lived together, Mary Ellen controlled the money that the two amassed. If Thomas Bell's wife, Teresa, asked for money, she would consider it as reasonable or unreasonable, and then checked in with Thomas Bell for approval. <laughs> She's such a boss. Mm-hmm. Trouble began when Thomas died in 1892. She still had all of her investments, but Pleasant was cash poor. All of her ma- money and fortune were just basically tied up in stocks and investments. She didn't like have $707 million right. sitting somewhere yeah. in cash. She was cash poor at this time when, when Bell passed away. Teresa, Thomas Bell's wife, who was known as emotionally and mentally unstable, claimed that Mary Ellen stole tens of thousands of dollars from the family and that her late husband had been manipulated. The case went to trial, and it was difficult to tell who owned what because the money was so intertwined, intertwined between Bell and Pleasant. Though Pleasant proved that the mansion rightfully belonged to her, she decided to leave it in 1899 and moved into a six-room apartment instead. This was basically all to avoid Teresa's bullshit, who kept coming after Mary Ellen's money. She lived on Webster Street with a maid, and the Bell children frequently visited her, who referred to her as Auntie. That kind of tells you a lot. Uh, she was offered a large sums of money to tell her story as a worker on the Underground Railroad, her work with John Brown, and her work in aiding former slaves. But she turned it down because she did not want to betray her friends. found that really interesting because it was the end of the Civil War, but all of these people that aided in escaping slaves and freeing the slaves and basically beating the South were a lot of them were still alive. Mm-hmm. Um, their families were still alive, and Southern slave owners were still right, probably rightfully pissed off that their way of life got changed. But oh well. So she didn't want to tell any of these stories because of fear people would come after her friends, like kill them and her family. For helping win the war, right? So she's mm-hmm. basically stayed silent her whole life about what she did. Um, she did write a memoir at the end of her life, which is where we got a lot of this information. Before she died, it was her wish to, quote, clear the identity of the party who furnished John Brown with most of his money to start the fight at Har- Harper's Ferry and who signed the letter found on him when he was arrested. Someone got blamed for that note and they mm-hmm. went after him. And she stayed silent, but now she wants to clear their base. I mean, I assume at the time, a lot of people still looked at the Harpers Ferry incident as treason. Mm-hmm. And whoever funded it was also treasonous and an enemy. So she wanted to clear their name. Uh, the sum she donated was $30,000, which was equivalent to nearly a million dollars in 2020. She had said that this act was the most important and significant act of her life. Mary Ellen became weakened and frail in her final days and was brought to the home of a friend where she peacefully passed away on January 11th, 1904. She was laid to rest in Napa, California. Her gravesite was dedicated on June 11th, 2011, and it reads, quote, she was a friend of John Brown. This was requested by her before her death. Her mansion in San Francisco was soon demolished and replaced with a park named after her, 
Mary Ellen Pleasant Memorial Park, where eucalyptus trees planted by Mary Ellen remain today. So, man, her, she stayed silent her whole life, right? Yeah. And it's wild to go back and learn these little stories in history because, you know, going through school, high school, middle school, whatever, we learn like Civil War and the history and the big points. Yeah. But then you learn kind of outliers, I guess. There's always somebody behind the scenes. There's like the man in the high castle. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's always somebody that you don't know that's funding things. So we think about like the Harper's Ferry incident, like that was a big thing, got all the attention, but there's always someone underneath it. And who was underneath it? But this lady who is a former slave, so a lot of people think, that amassed this huge fortune that just totally changed the landscape for for the war. She kind of funded an event that sparked the, the Civil War and made a lot of people, I mean, changed a lot of people's lives and the whole entire country. And I had never heard of her up until like yeah. three weeks ago. Same. Thank <laughs> goodness she, thanks, thank goodness she wrote a memoir. Yeah. Right. I mean, else, yeah, she kind of lived in fear, rightfully so, I guess. Mm-hmm about her friends and somewhat her own well-being and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. Wild. I loved it. Wild. Yeah. All right, Con. That's my story. We're sticking to it. That was episode 108. Mary Ellen Pleasant. We'll catch you next time.